The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, hi, Music Row family. Uh, It's good to be able to speak to you uh, from the stage of our old Hickory location, and uh, I miss seeing you live, uh, but I'm glad to be able to speak with you, and I know just as much as it's been a it's been a shift for all of us to figure out what it means to actually connect and see one another and be together, and we, although we may not be able to uh, give high fives or handshakes or hugs at the end of a service as we usually do, I know that we get to at least see one another and uh, even connect in some sense through uh, this amazing medium of technology. So I'm grateful to be be able to even preach to you and and bring good news of the gospel in the midst of all sorts of news that we continue hearing about what's going on in our world and country and city. You know, in 1946, uh, the Austrian uh, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, wrote his famous work, Man's Search for Meaning. It was his look back at the awful experiences that he encountered himself as a Holocaust survivor. And Thinking about what the Holocaust is, uh, and any of you historians or maybe have relatives who even were a part of that atrocity, that everything horrible happened at once. Uh, Everything taken away from you, everything happening to you, all the atrocities that you would experience along a lifetime happening in one instance stretched over days, months, and for some years. And he developed from his writing and from his studying and recalling this a thing called logotherapy. And what it was, it was a method he called for healing the soul by cultivating the capacity to find a meaningful life. He was digging into the roots of what does it really mean to have hope in the midst of weariness? How do do people make it through? And he, he found that there were about four groups that made this Um, possible. The four were this. The first was one who hoped in self. This was a group who had not a whole lot of reality outside of self. They were willing to betray others in order to self-preserve. They were those who took care of themselves. In some ways, these are the things that we idolize in uh, American pop culture, specifically in movies and other ways, the the, the rugged uh, individualistic type who can take care of self. That's where their hope was, but oftentimes they found themselves isolated and idolized. 
The other kind was hope in circumstance, that someone, something would change around them. Is there a way to manipulate the circumstances, the atrocities they were dealing with to make it better, to, to live better, to see something that would give them hope around them? But many of them died hopeless because of the things that they could not control, things that, that were out of their hands. The third were hope in restoration, hope that there is going to be a restoration, that one day in the end, it'll all be worth it. But as they noticed over and over, as the days lengthened and the time went on, it just was hard to hold on to. They grew weary. But he found the group that really held on to hope the most, that made it through the weariness, was a small group. And it was a very small group that put their hope, they said, where the Nazis could not destroy. They were able to maintain their inner freedom because they believed that there was someone in heaven looking down on them. That there was someone who kept them, someone who loved them, someone who was bigger than they that was holding on to them. It wasn't so much their grasp of holding on to life, but in his words, it says that life was holding on to them, capital L. It was a hope that brought them through the weariness because it wasn't about their grip. It was about someone else's. And look, we're... Gosh, in a time now that is just maybe even at the beginnings of all of us being in social isolation, canceling things, postponing, not knowing even really how far this time of seclusion because of the virus that we're a part of is going to keep us. And some of us may even be in a period of weariness, if not um, heading that way. And I think the question is, how do we have hope in that? What gives us the hope? What, what, what gives us a grip to be together, to continue meeting, even in these kind of ways, to continue hoping that, that there's something more beyond this? And just particularly even in our city that's hit, been hit and ravaged with devastation, with tornadoes, not to mention the isolation from the COVID-19 that we're dealing with. Paul talks about this weariness in this passage. In this passage, he, he actually draws it out to say, don't grow weary. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary. But how do we do that? And what he does is exactly what Viktor Frankl was pointing to. Paul is getting to something deeper. He's saying that the way that we can have our grip held is through relationship. It's through community. It's through knowing that it's not just us holding on. It's not how strong we are, but it's how strong his grip is on us. That we, we can do good. We can not grow weary of doing good because we know that there's someone else that's holding us together, someone else. And he uses, again, as we've seen over and over in Galatians and even in many of Paul's letters he wrote, that when Paul wrote letters, many letters for many of you that maybe uh, listening that, that are un unaccustomed to the Bible or uh, unfamiliar with it. Paul, a man who wrote several letters to different churches who were weary, who were weary, were trying to live out this gospel, but they were weary, particularly this one that was written in the 40s or 50s AD that was written to a, a, a church that had been told that they needed to do more. In order to really be a Christian, you gotta, be, you gotta move past the finish line by taking up more. And if there was one thing that they needed to hear is how not to grow weary. How do you not grow weary? Is it by our grip or is it by someone else's? 
And that's what we want to look at today. We're going to look at this as he uses an agricultural metaphor again to tell us that this is a long road. This is something that's sewn in. This is something that's a part of the fabric of where we are. And, and, it, and it's not something that happens quickly as much as we want to. In an instantaneous world, even with this live stream that you get, that's so instantaneous, you can stop and start and turn off and on. And yet the reality of life is like this agricultural metaphor. Is how do we move through a life as farmers, learning to sow and reap in the wisdom of how God has made this world and through who we are in him. So we're going to look at this passage in two ways. We're going to look at it first in what we sow and secondly, how we sow. Just two simple points. First, what we sow and then how we sow. You know, the passage actually is about um, sowing and reaping. It actually takes a, a, a natural uh, law of that maybe we've heard before, we use in common vernacular of you, you reap what you sow, you know, when people say that line, they're actually taking it from the reality that's a natural law that how God has set up the world. You can see it in verse seven. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, what he's saying is, is that there is a law of the universe, <laughs> Just a natural law, the way that God has set up the world, that what we sow in life, what we do in life, reaps consequences. That doesn't necessarily mean negative. It also means positive. It means that whatever we're sowing throughout this life, it, it means that we're going to see something on the other side of that. It's an absolute principle, as, as Tim Keller in his commentary considered it, an absolute principle of the world. Uh, a lot of my it's a law of the universe. As a lot of my uh, friends who are psych uh, psychologists and therapists say, this is like the parent of life. <laughs> that there are things in life that are natural laws. If, if, we, if we don't do them, uh, we will see consequences. Uh, natural things. If we eat too much, uh, we'll find ourselves sick. If we work too much, uh, we'll find ourselves isolated or exhausted. It, we, we, we do certain things. If we do too much of certain things or, or sometimes even too little, we see what comes out on the other side of those things. Maybe this is in some ways kind of like Paul. And as you heard growing up, maybe from your parents, those lines that they gave you, uh, you know, like there's nothing good that happens after midnight. You know, those kind of phrases that we none of us ever liked when we heard growing up, but we always knew they were true. That is what it is a natural law is. A natural law isn't something you can argue with. It's something we can debate over. It's something we can have opinions about, but it's only something we can actually react to because it's just there. It's like gravity. We can talk about it. We can try and defy it. We can, we can do things against it, but it always is there. It's just in the fabric of this world. It's just always there. And what we do with it is what's really important, that what we sow now is paramount to who we are. You know, the Greeks actually believed, and even in Galatia, who are Greek people, they believed in uh, this uh, in God called Nemesis, a, a person or a figure that would track them down and avenge uh, the doer shall suffer. It was the saying that they had. And a lot of times we can read something like, you know, you reap what you sow as that kind of thing is, is oh, you reap what you sow. It usually comes with negative connotations because we think, oh, well, if I do good things, therefore I get good. 
But what it does is, it, it, like nemesis, it's kind of our Americanized version of it. It's kind of a, a karma-like thing. It's a belief that if we do good things in this life, we'll reap and we'll see good things later on. But that's really an Americanized karma or even a, a karmic, karmic view that comes out of uh, other religions. Some of it is, uh, we hear, is what goes around comes around. And as the great philosopher and uh, singer Justin Timberlake said, as what goes around comes around, you know, he put it in this way. <clears throat> I found out he's doing to you what you did to me. Ain't that the way it goes? <laughs> Talking about his relationships. But that's what we typically can think of when we read a verse like this. Is we, for the first five chapters, Paul's unpacking all sorts of great thoughts and ideas of, of the gospel, the good news. And the good news is this, is that it's not down to your work to make you a Christian. It's not what you can do that makes you that. But see, what's happening here is something that we need to understand. Different than karma, this isn't the, the sum of your, your whole as, uh, of salvation. That's, that's what karma is. It's the sum of your works equals your salvation. This isn't the earning of salvation. This is the application of it. And so when Paul in chapter six gets here and he says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. What he's getting at is he's saying, we can't deceive God in the way that he has set up this world. We can't make God a fool by thinking that we can sow anything or live any way we want without there being anything attached to it. And in fact, what he's trying to get to is to the Galatians and even the people trying to teach this church that they need to do more. He's saying, here's what it really means to do. Here's what it really means to live out the application of the gospel is that you can't hide from the reality of what we reap is what we sow. See, the Bible defines it this way. In fact, there are over 60 different verses or passages that actually use this explicit expression of reaping and sowing, 60. Here are a few of them. Proverbs 22.8, whoever sows injustice reaps calamity. <clears throat> and the rod they wield in fury will be broken. Psalm 126.5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. See, that not just negative, positive. Uh, Paul picks this up uh, several times in his, his letters to uh, different churches. One in 2 Corinthians 9 talks about giving generously, how we sow and reap by the way that we give, not just give time or resources, but our money, our things, good things, generously, how we do those. It's a deeply proverbial thing. In fact, Tim Keller, uh, again, in his commentary says this, and I love the way he put it. He says, um, all of Proverbs... The book of Proverbs, if you're unfamiliar, is a, is a book written to young children to learn the way of the world through a, a godly lens. And he said, all of that is summed up in this one verse, <laughs> that whatever one sows, that he will also reap. That is it. And here's why. Because Proverbs is saying this, what it means to be a fool is to sow this world in a way to try and wrap it around ourselves. That's why it says, for the one who sows to his own flesh, he will reap corruption. What's he saying? He's saying that if we sow to ourselves, if we try and take this world, all of what we have, and tailor it, wrap it, move it circumstantially, make it around us, then we are being foolish for the way that this is. And we're trying to make God out to be a fool to say, we can take whatever you've given us and make it work for our benefit. 
But what wisdom really is, is learning how this world is set up, learning the realities, the natural laws of this world, the fabric, the moral fabric that is actually already written into the entire universe and learning how we tailor ourselves to God's world rather than taking his world and making it tailor to us. That's true wisdom. And that's what it really means to sow. It means that we sow in wisdom. We see what we're really doing, and especially in a time like this where so many of us are confined to our homes or spaces. Man, I don't know about you, but I've had to slow down. It has made me, it's like a forced Lent is what I've called it with our staff, that God is kind of putting us in a Lenten season that is forced to kind of take inventory of our own hearts, to really see what is going on inside of us, to say, what do I sow? You know, whenever you are in that space where you're forced to slow down, you have to think, and sometimes we don't want to think, but this is the time to ask the question, what, what are we sowing? Not just are we overeating or overworking or those kind of things, which we may be. It, it, it would definitely force us to think about that. Are we, what do we think about everything around us? How are we sowing? But really to take inventory of the application of it. What are we really sowing in our lives that we need to slow down and make, make sense of? And, it, and there's a huge difference between us doing karma and grace. And I love this uh, um, interview with Bono from a book called uh, Interview with Bono by Mishka uh, Essayas. It's a great interview that he had with Bono, the lead singer of U2, whom I love. And I've even recently feel, found that I'm using several quotes from Bono lately that have been encouraging to me as my favorite band. Maybe that's uh, just a little note of God's kindness. But he says this about grace versus karma, what the difference is. Mishka Sayas asked him, about uh, the appalling things that are going on. And this is an older book, so not at this time, but it says Bono, uh, he said, um, all the appalling things that happen when people become religious. But Bono countered him by saying, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. See, but the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. Mishka said, what's that? What's the difference? And Bono replied, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. But Bono explained, and yet along comes this idea called grace to upend it all. Love interrupts, if you like. The consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Because that's between me and God. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge, said Bono. It doesn't excuse my mistakes. There are consequences in what we sow. But I'm holding out for grace because I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross. Because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Amen to that. So what do we sow? What is it, that question? What, what are the things that we sow in life that we depend on to get good return? Are we sowing to try and earn God's favor? Are we sowing to try and put ourselves in a position to reap 
what we think would be a great quick fix. But isn't this why Jesus goes to the Pharisees over and over? The Pharisees, the ones who are religious, not not people who are doing sordid things in the culture as he did. And he would call them on those kind of things. But to the Pharisees are the ones that he said, you are the ones who are getting your reward in full now. And that's what this is saying. He says, for he sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. That there's, there's a greater reward by reaping into the spirit, but reaping into our own flesh, um, sowing into our own flesh rather than sowing into the spirit reaps a, a, a quick reward, a quick momentary time. And that's what Jesus was getting at with the Pharisees themselves. Your reward is in full. You got it now. But what do they have beyond that? And that's how we sow, right? How we sow matters. What he's trying to get to them is, is not just the what. You're sowing good things even, but how we sow matters. See, we've seen flesh and spirit often in the Bible. And even in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he talks about the flesh and spirit are at war. They're fighting against each other. There's just this constant butting against each other. But this metaphor is almost like looking at two tracts of land, two fields, unplowed. One is a field of flesh. One is a field of the spirit, capital S, meaning God's Holy Spirit. And that means that there are two side by side. And the question is, how do we sow? How do we take the seed that is ours and begin sowing into the right soil, into what it is? And here's what he says, listen. He says this, for the one who sows to his own flesh will will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. It first begins by to what we sow. Notice it's to his own flesh. There's a difference between that and sowing to the spirit. It's in relationship rather than self. The first way we sow, we actually practically do this, is by sowing into relationship. See, corruption is reaped by by what is self-focused. And we know that. Man, I am... So, I so easily see the things that when later on at the, in the moment, they feel like they are so good and, 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 and I feel so empowered. And later on, they reap just corruption, whether it's an argument with, uh, with my spouse or whether it's uh, the way that I view my own work or the way that I've, I've treated friendships, that, that I see my own corruption and I, I see that, man, what I thought was right, what I thought I was doing, or maybe not even trying to do, sowed a seed that reaped a fruit that wasn't there before. St. Augustine, one of my favorite theologians from the the, um, the fourth century, said it this way. He said, our nature by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends bends the best gifts of God towards itself. It even takes the best gifts that God gives us and curves them inward. That's what actually this means. What it means to to sow into the flesh, it means that we're sowing into, and I love that language, sows to his own flesh, that it is inwardly curved, that we're taking all of it, especially with so many of us, like I said, just sitting in our homes or finding ourselves confined at least, whether it's work confinement or uh, family confinement, whatever it is, we're forced to slow down and think. And many of us may be filling the time with 
things. And as I have, as we fill the time with movies and uh, games and jumping on a trampoline with my children or whatever it may be that we're doing, but slowing down to actually ask, am I sowing into myself or am I sowing outside? Some of the things, ways that we can see that, even of envy, you know, sitting and thinking, it can reap discontent. And when we, we sow envy, we reap discontent, and then it reaps bitterness as we keep asking the question. And do you find yourself asking this question? Let's diagnostically look at these things. Are we asking the question, hey, why is my life not like that? How come I have to be this way? How come I don't have what they have? How, how come I'm having to see this pattern over and over? How come this is where we are right now? Are we sowing ways that we are discontent, uh, reaping discontentment because we're sowing envy into our hearts? Maybe holding a grudge. Maybe, man, with all the social media time and us being socially distant, we're social media you know, crazy right now. It's way easy to. I mean, I'm on things and utilizing it more than I ever have. But are we seeing people on there that maybe we've held a grudge against? You know, one of the number one forms of, of encountering our, our anger and bitterness and envy and discontent is seeing those faces, seeing those people that maybe we've had broken relationships with or have harmed us or hurt us or we hold a grudge against. Are we sowing still deep resentment and anger by seeing their face, even in this time? Are we sowing that and so that we find ourselves reaping just... Uh, bitterness and, and mistrust and, and even resentment and more anger that's popping up in other ways? Are we sowing other things like gossip or sowing isolation in ways that, that put us and reap distance from other people and put us in a position where we are so anxious and mistrust everyone because it creates such a distance? What are we sowing? Could be those things. Those are internal things. Could be external things that we're sowing. It could be any sort of form of overwork. Maybe like you, I'm finding myself, we, we're slowing down and we're, we're either finding ourselves out of jobs. Maybe many of you are freelance workers and you're fi- trying to find work and, and it makes you go, gosh, how, am I, how have I sowed the way that I pursue work? And, and, it, and it really can produce now and change the way we can sow to the spirit, not just doing things like, prayer and, and uh, scripture and things away and even watching sermons like this one, but sowing to our relationship with God. You see, that's the difference. Rather than sowing to self, it says sow to the spirit. It means sowing to, getting into, being with, and the spirit is the one. And, and magnanimously, how God actually, in, in, in all of our isolation, in all of our confinement, in all of our uh, social distancing, the one who has never and will never distance himself and can o- go over and above is the actual spirit himself. God himself in the third person of the Trinity does in amazing wisdom to be close to us, that the beginning of sowing comes in relationship to God. And then from that comes prayer, from that comes scripture, that we don't go to those things to to warrant our relationship with God. We go to those things because we're in relationship to God. It's outward. It begins outward with God coming then inward. It doesn't start by pointing inward to us. It sows to God. And then how we sow also matters in good. How do we see it? Notice this. This is 
where it really gets heavy is it says, and let us not, in verse nine, grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are the household of faith. How do we sow? It's in doing good. Notice he's not saying in doing small groups or doing Bible study, it's in doing good. It's expressing good, it's in action. And I think oftentimes in the Christian life, we can live it by sowing intention rather than action. We can sow intention of, of caring for people, intention of maybe showing a little bit of care, but not action of what this is calling us to, that faith isn't feelings. Faith isn't feeling good about your relationship with God or everything, everything else. It's sowing to, it's an action to, to the spirit that drives us action to do good. The idea here is that, that we're doing work of good. It's a, a hard work. It's called oftentimes common good or common grace. That means to everyone. Notice he says, not just the people of household of faith, but to everyone, everyone around us. And what a great Passage. God has uniquely put this and even last week's passage forward to us in Galatians to encourage us to drive deep into our hearts to say, how, how do we sow <laughs> to the Spirit? It's by doing the good around us, by thinking about the neighbors that we actually have right next to us, not right in front of us. The people that we can even, we can be close enough to yell over a fence or, or from yard to yard and, and ask and say, how are you? To check in with people, to actually text them, maybe asking the question, what do they need? Because we all, and this is the, the thing it's getting, that this passage is getting at, the basic needs. Doing good doesn't just mean that we're giving a verse or something else, but it means that we're doing good. We're asking that what are all the needs that people have? all the ways they're hungry, all the ways that they need shelter or money or food or what are those things that they need, those questions we ask and we need to ask. Are they lonely? Maybe we need to ask and invite people to join a Facebook group or some sort of a chat room that we have that we may have with other friends that we invite people who, who are by themselves. So many people are stuck at home or without family or friends, far from those things, even from a city they, they came from that are living in this one. And, and they're grieving losses. They're grieving losses like their schedules. Would it be that a graduation, an internship, a, a job, a, a school, weddings, even funerals I've heard people have had to grieve losing loved ones and not even be able to hold a funerals. How are we actually reaching out to all of those around us? to express the good to them that we care for where they are and that we begin now, even now, sowing the small seeds of good that we are keeping and loving those around us. Some have lost income and freelance jobs. There are a lot of people just by hourly, day-by-day -day jobs, they've lost wages. Are we looking ways to help them, support them, find work, and maybe even other ways that they need support or help? You know, when we are shopping or, or looking online or going to stores, or are, we, are we hoarding? Are we only taking what we need? One way we can just even help those around us and so good is by taking only what we need. Not by living in fear of what, 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 what's gonna happen to me, but living by faith that God is really good. And he, so much so that he put himself in flesh to be in and amongst the fear and panic and care 
of those around him in the space and time that he did. Because what we're doing is, is sowing now. We're sowing now seeds of good into our, into our city, through to our neighbors, to our friends, to our families, people that may or, or may not be within the walls of our church family. So that when this is lifted, when this period of, of somewhat social distancing and, and, and uh, the, the curve is flattened possibly of the virus and the things that begin to change and we, we emerge from this, what we see is seedlings, seedlings of good that have been growing because we have been sowing small places of good even from the beginning. And it's not just our church, it's our church family. It's asking that across all churches. My dear friends, asking those who are of other churches, and it says here even, and especially those who are of the household of faith, that means are we reflecting in our own church that good and care and love and support so that people outside go, man, I wanna be a son or daughter of that family. So that when this is lifted, they go, gosh, how do I, how do I become a part of that? How do I experience what that's like on the inside and not, and, and not just watch it, but, but feel it more? That's what we're to do is we do that in the household of faith because it's a gradual and eternal. No, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. It's not quick. That's why he says that. Anything agricultural isn't quick. It's gonna take time. It takes a long time. There's a delay. Just like even now I'm watching the delay of my grass in my yard that was brown and crunchy in the, in the winter with some of the temperature change and rain and everything is spots of green and, and, and things are beginning to sprout and grow. It's changing. They were lying dormant for a long time. But it will grow back and it will come up full. One of my greatest favorite images that we're looking at right now and as a family or even in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And in that, C.S. Lewis wrote this great um, series of books of images of, of what it means to live in that kingdom. And in the one, of the most probably his most famous one called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he writes about these kids who move, go into a wardrobe and they find themselves in the land of Narnia. And when they first find themselves, it's winter and it's winter all the time. And as they find out, it's winter all the time without Christmas coming. And soon one day they come across as they hear a sleigh and reindeer with bells. And all of a sudden, Father Christmas comes upon them, it says. And they realize, wow, this is Father Christmas. There's Christmas here. And this is what Father Christmas says to the kids, I've come at last, he said to them. The witch, the wicked witch who has cast this winter spell over the land has kept me out for a long time, but I have gotten in at last. Aslan is on the move and the witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt running through her the deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you're being solemn and still. You know, right now we are in a time of winter, just as they were. And even in that moment, it was still snow around them. They were still feeling the cold. They were still feeling the isolation, the effects of the witch's work. But all the while, Aslan was on the move, sowing, and soon there would be receding of the winter. And it wasn't so much of their work, it was because they would grow weary. It was the one who came in as 
Hebrews 12 says of this one, he says, consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, have you have uh, sin you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood? Almost to ask the question, have you? Who is the one who grips us? Who is the one who even when we sow things that we wish we hadn't sown or see the harvest of ways in our lives that we wish we hadn't seen, who's the one that grips us and calls us back to sow in the goodness and kindness of the, uh, the gospel? It's the one who never grew weary even against such hostility against himself. He never grew faint-hearted. He drew himself to the cross in order that we might be drawn up in him. That's how we do not grow weary of doing good. It's not our grip, but it's his. So we can sow, we can scatter the seed. We have the freedom to learn and and learn to be farmers, to know what we sow and take joy in what we reap and even work at the places and parts in us that we see that need tending more than others. Praise be to God for this one. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your grip that is never weary. Lord, and even in that moment on the cross, you allowed yourself to become the one who took the weight of the world on your shoulders, the weight of every seed sown in this world, both in our own sin and self-righteousness, that you bore it there, and yet you suffered such hostility against yourself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's because of your shoulders and strength that we can know that you are on the move, even now in this time we're in, so that we can, we can grow continually without hope, even when we get weary. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing our, I'd love for us to sing our doxology together as we draw to a close. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive the Lord's benediction from Hebrews. And if you would like, raise your hands in your hearts wherever you are now. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. Go in peace.